welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Welcome, friends. This week, my guest is Jay Stamatelos. He's a professionally certified coach who helps people break out of fear so they can share their gifts with the world. He works specifically on anxious insecurity, which is a chronic feeling of insecurity that causes one to feel never enough and then produces a number of unhelpful behaviors. His coaching is based on academic research and data-driven approaches. And this is a wonderful conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. So enjoy this week's episode with Jay Stamatelos. So Jay, you're, you're on record saying that among the population you work with, a resolution or a healing of self-loathing is a very effective way to improve quality of life. How common do you think self-loathing is? Everyone, we have to break this into two, two different levels. So if we look at this as self-criticism, I think we can say that everyone has self-criticism because it's healthy too. If you had no self-criticism at all, you would you would you would burn all of your relationships, you would never hold your mouth, you would never there has to be something inside you that's helping you limit. But there is a difference between something that's helping you make good choices and something that is absolutely destroying you, ripping you apart from the inside. So the population I work with uses they often use self-loathing and self-criticism as a way to stay motivated, to stay fired up and to get things done. That is very effective in the short term, but it comes at a massive long-term cost. So if we look at that and we define that as the thing we're talking about, I think that is extremely common, especially among younger generations. It sounds kind of similar to anxiety being used as a motivator. Right. And, and kind of striking a healthy balance. If we use anxious as an adjective, I refer to what I work with people on as anxious insecurity. That no matter how much I achieve, no matter how much I do, I'm never enough. And that always has two parts to it. You have this very fear-based drive to do more because if I'm not enough, I'll make myself enough. And so we push ourselves and we usually use a lot of self-criticism to do that. And we fight and we achieve and we sacrifice but no matter how much we do, it never feels like we're enough. That void inside remains. Now, on the other side, you have, because I'm not enough, I need to hide. I need to hide in shame. I can't let people see me for who I am yet. And some people will do that literally, where they will withdraw from family and friends. Some people will do that metaphorically, and they'll maybe wear a mask to just wear around everyone around them, but no one knows who they actually are. And that ends up being very isolating. So it, yeah. This ties into a lot of things. The mask analogy was one of the most profound influences on me in high school. Mm. It really struck home. How so? And it made me, it just, it really, it, it came through with a lot of clarity, realizing that myself and then a lot of other people don't have the, we could call it freedom, we could call it courage, we could call it space or permission to really just 
be who they are without being criticized on the mild end and maybe ostracized or right. even physically attacked, you know, on the extreme end. Like thinking about like if someone's queer, for example, in a, a high school, kids are ruthless, you know? So that really struck home to me. And I was in an all boys environment, which is like a very double edged sword. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it's like the best and the worst at the same time. <laughs> so yeah, that, and that oriented me really very profoundly, I think in my life and trying to be true to myself and not letting others opinions overly influence me. And then also kind of enabling others to have a look at that option for themselves. Right. And and this podcast is a manifestation of that. Hmm. Mm. What what do you so think? Yeah, that, that, I, I love that analogy. What do you think? Just out of curiosity, what when did you realize that that's what you were doing, and what allowed you to start to break out of that? I think I kind of always had the internal permission thing of like internal family systems, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like literally. <laughs> Literally in my family, I was given the space to be, I think my, so, you know, both of my siblings ahead of me were competent and confident in their own ways. And I want to be respectful of their privacy, but I guess I can say there are things about each of them that are non-traditional um, in you know, like pushing back on norms, gender norms. And, and so I think I kind of had a subconscious permission to, cause they were quite adamant about this is who I am and that's okay. You know, and, and, you know, and also I think something I've noticed in a family setting, like let's take someone being queer, for example, sure. in like a traditional nu- nuclear family. I've never experienced this, so I'm just kind of armchair assessing here. But I think the difference between being tolerated and being celebrated for for that orientation is so massive. And I think that a lot of people who are the parents of queer people, maybe if they knew what that shift would mean to their kid to go from just tolerating them to actually celebrating who they are would be very fundamental. Um, so I think, yeah, just kind of having that permission for my, for my siblings. And then I think the other thing that rugby was a big part of it because mm. it, it kind of like gave me the understanding like, okay, like it just, it just comes with a tremendous amount of um, comfort in my own skin, you know? Right it's just such a like ridiculous kind of like extreme thing that made me more comfortable in my own skin. Um, yeah. So I think, and and then to answer further, uh, (laughs) you're interviewing me. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. I think I kind of where that started was with my friend group as far as like trying to, um, 
by be, my friends enabled me to be myself because mm. like I have a, a friend Drew in this podcast, another great episode. Um, he and I were talking not too long ago, and he was talking about how in high school. I was just like this whirlwind of like eccentric and random shit. <laughs> and everyone was like, I don't know this kid, like what? <laughs> but it just kind of like evolved and morphed into this beautiful thing. And he's like, that's great. And you know, and that's just, who, yeah, you know, and, and so that they were like, go ahead, dude. And they didn't just tolerate me, right? They celebrated me. And so I think that's really where it all started. Yeah. I think that's a great way to put it. And I love the difference between tolerating and celebrating. And that's something because not only can we look at that and, and say how important that is for a family dynamic, but we can turn that right back on ourselves. Do you tolerate yourself? Do you celebrate yourself? It's a, it's a question worth considering. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it I think it speaks to too, like the, the idea of how prevalent is the, you know, self-loathing. Yeah. So, I have a philosophical question for you. Hit me. Is fear the opposite of desire? Can you explain? Can you, just so I know I'm answering your question, can you just a little bit more tell me what you mean by that? Sure. So, Thinking about forces weighing on us in our lives, um, you know, from a systems perspective, like thinking about all the different factors and mechanic mechanisms in our lives, I think those are two very big ones. So a fear of stepping out of line, a fear of losing a relationship, a fear of losing approval of others, and then also desire to be true to oneself and maybe have a dream and foster it and chase it, you know, and go get it. So are those two things mirror mirrors of each other? Are, are they the opposite side of the same coin or are they something else? I don't know if I'm going to answer your question. So I'm going to do my best to cause and if, so if I'm not just jump in and stop me, I think I would rephrase your question as this is cliche, but I don't know any other way to do this. Not so much about fear versus desire, but maybe fear versus love or light versus darkness, something like that. Because what I'm hearing, the big difference between the energies you're talking about is fear is very protection based. At the end of the day, it's about protection. And what you're calling desire, or we, what I'm hearing you call desire, the way I'm interpreting it is this is about expression. So one goes in, one goes out. And I don't know. I think it's a really good question because, you know, if we think about hate versus love, I do not view those as different, uh, as opposites. I think the opposite of love is indifference. It's nothingness. It's not hatred. Hatred is its own form of love that is kind of perverted. You're going in a certain way because you're still attached to that thing. But I think what you're specifically asking about is a little bit different because I'm hearing it in terms of behavior. Is this something that I'm self-protecting or is this something where I'm expressing? That's really interesting. 
So is that maybe indicative of personality types? Because thinking about a more risk averse person, maybe more, you know, fear based in this way, not literally, but just kind of fortifying, building a moat around themselves and what they have and their, their security versus someone who's maybe more, um, the word would be outgoing and seeking greater, um, opportunistic or aspirational, you know, so is that kind of a, another way to look at it? So a more risk averse is akin to fear or like a, a protection based attitude of her life. And then a more opportunistic or mm, having high goals, you know, would be on the other side. I don't know. I don't know that I have the answer for that because I don't know that there's, there's not a universal metric I could use to measure two different people. So, okay. So I am, I'm a coach, which is its own thing. And you have, there's really, it's not even my favorite title, but it's the only, it's the best I have right now. There's, yeah, yeah. there's two different, <laughs> really two different groups of coaches. And I promise this will come back to your question. Um, when most of us think of a coach, we think of something, and this is what I was taught in my training when I, when I went for my training like 10 years ago, um, is achievement coaching. When most of us think of coaches, we think of achievement coaches. And achievement coach is someone who you come to with a goal, and the client says, I want to achieve X, and the coach's only goal is to make sure the client achieves, achieves that. That's, that's the whole thing. So... Uh, a lot of business coaching is this, a lot of executive coaching is this, a lot of literal athletic coaching, what we think of as this. Anything that involves like a mix of mentoring and a mix of also coaching, finding out what are the client's blocks and how can we get through them to get this done. While I have the skills for that, it's not my, I, I, th I think it's kind of boring. I'm a discovery coach. So a discovery coach is way less concerned about what the client wants to achieve and way more concerned about who they are as a person. So the two questions that, that dictate everything I do with someone are, who are you and what do you want to do with your life or what do you want to do with your energy? Those are the only two things that matter. So if a client comes in and says, I have this huge goal, I, I really want to achieve X, I'm going to be really, I'm not going to say no to this because I, I, I don't know. It's, maybe it's great for them. Maybe it's not. I can't make that determination. But I am going to be really curious about their why. Why do you want to achieve that? What's this really about? And what I, when I started this career, like what's getting to the point of you and I having this conversation today, is I started to realize when I did that with people, virtually everyone was trying to achieve their worth. If I achieve this, then I'll know beyond a doubt that I am a worthwhile person of value. I'll prove to everyone. Most importantly, myself, that I am deserving of love and respect and all of these things I feel like are missing in my life. And I really started to learn that because early on, I, I was never comfortable with it because I knew this wasn't great, but I would still try to help people, you know, do my job, achieve things, but it never, it never fixed anything. And I really started to learn, okay, we have to throw out this model and really look at this why. Why is this problem here in the first place? Why is this void here? And how can we address it? Because to come back to personality types, everyone can only be measured against themselves. 
There's no real great way to compare two different people. We can come up with a hundred different metrics of comparison. They're all arbitrary. There's no good way to compare two people. But someone can tell you if they're acting from a place of fear or if they're acting from a place of truth and expression. And it will almost always be a mix, but we want to know what is the ratio. So I try to look at everyone as an individual. And most most importantly, I just want to make sure that they are happy with the way they are making choices and the way they are taking action. So I kind of answered your question and kind of didn't all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> all good, man. It's really interesting. Yeah, I asked a kind of more abstract question because I feel as I've, I've learned through having conversations that it's kind of better to like to to that line you just delivered about stepping away from you know results orientation and kind of more internal awareness right. i think the way you explain that is more clear now rather than if i had asked so why is it better to look inside than to have external goals right. you know um so part of it is just i learning i think how to like make the information more accessible. And part of what I think is really interesting, right? Like another good one, uh, I'm reading this book and I think that the two they described were, um, well, the question was like, you know, what is suffering and why, mm. what is the role of suffering? And then in, in the, in the novel, someone, one of the characters made the assertment that, um, like happiness and suffering are opposites. Um, and I, I think that kind of like, dual ideas is always interesting to to kind of to bounce around so also another abstract idea that i've been <laughs> wrestling with for the last year on this program is what is the opposite of toxic masculinity hmm Again, just out of curiosity, how are you defining toxic masculinity? Yep. As it gets back to the individual, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think for me it's uh, abusing uh, an, an abusive power. So whether that be, you know, obviously physically, physical intimidation, all the way to, you know, horrendous crimes against humanity. Um, I also feel that in some ways it, it's not limited to men either, right? Because the whole idea that the feminine and the masculine are in, are in everyone. Mm -hmm. And so a abandonment of or an unawareness of the potential of the masculine energy, I think is also a shame. And it could be defined as toxic, right? So like kind of having a potential, having an ability to reach for more and do more and not striving to, not caring enough to. Um, and I think everyone has different gifts, right? So my capacity in one area is going to be different than yours, is going to be different than the next person's area and their capacity. But I think like caring enough to try and to be more and to be better and, and get and help the people around us, I think to me is like not, you know, there's, there's the obvious manifestations of like 
being crude, being mean, being abusive. But I think another area too is kind of not caring enough to try to be more. To me, that's maybe not toxic, but it's wasteful in some way. I think if we look at um, if we look at it in terms of what I think you're referring to when you talk about the what some people call the divine feminine or divine masculine, that mas that masculine is that creative energy is that pushing forward is that. So you're saying that there has to be room for that. And I'm also hearing that recognizing that there are certain behaviors that men get trapped into or feel forced into or how, however we want it, the domineering and all of these things. And that is important to me. As you know, I got into this field coming from counterterrorism. I got into this field wondering why people conduct violence against each other. I used to deploy with in support of Pittsburgh SWAT. And I would be on calls where people, you know, I'll never forget. I mean, I remember most of them, but I'll never forget the one where it was a guy. It was a hostage situation. And so we were deployed and it was a guy holding his girlfriend and daughter hostage at gunpoint. After an hour or two, after we got there, the negotiators were eventually able to get him to release his daughter and girlfriend by having his mom call him. And I will never forget. I will never forget the look on his girlfriend's face holding their daughter just with that blank hundred yards there. And just handing her water and her going to see the medics for her to get checked. And just, she's totally blanked out. And part of the reason I do this work and why I got interested in this is because of the emotional drivers for things like violence and things like people causing pain to one another. And a lot of this is, this is not entirely, but the action for the most part is carried out by men. For me, I look at toxic masculinity as any sort of archetype you have to fit into that is causing you to go unnecessarily to war against yourself. So to me, the short answer I would say is the opposite of the toxic masculinity is to have permission to exist. Because I feel like I could say the same thing about toxic femininity, if that's even a thing, is you have to be able to be a a woman as you are as a person, just as a man needs to be able to be a man just as he is. And I think I'm going on a little bit of a tangent, but I think so often when we talk about masculinity and I say, this is someone who ran men's groups who primarily works with male clients and who really has a passion for this work. I think we do ourselves a huge disservice when we always compare masculine to feminine because that is only one axis that can be the x-axis but there's also a y-axis and i think the another question we really need to ask ourselves is what's the difference between a man and a boy it's not there's so many different ways to look at ourselves and we can't be trapped in this just the single male female thing That makes a lot of sense. Also, there are no tangents. You have the floor, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I love that. 
And it's weird because it's even in the term fuckboy, right? Yeah. The, the word boy. And it's a great example of the inconsistencies and kind of hypocrisy that are, it's even beyond consumer culture. It's just our mass media culture, pop culture perpetuates of a forever young male. They could be 18. They could be 55 just with money doing drugs having women around with no clothes on little you know right. acting promiscuous talking about having sex talking about nothing of substance and that is the norm of what kids are shown boys are shown what being a man is right at least on you know in in, in pop culture but it's really ironic because, you know, if you go and talk to people, if no one wants that in a brother or a husband. Right. So it's like, why, how did this become the prevalent norm? You know, or that's a different conversation because that's more about like capitalism and consumerism, but mm-hmm. it's just an unfortunate side effect. And I think one of the other side effects of that kind of perverted funhouse mirror of how the modeling we're given is the more extreme examples, right? Of, of like mass violence or an isolated, you know, just like Brent was talking about an isolation, like a vulnerable, isolated young person getting radicalized online, an extreme example. Which is well. So those are both possible. That was what I loved. That yeah. was what got me through grad school was I was really curious what would make someone from Oklahoma run off and join a terrorist group overseas. That was the main thing. So I, I, I love that episode listening to, to him talk about that. Um, and I think on this subject, we can talk about the myths of men. And I think one of the biggest myths that we have is that men are not social. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like rugby, so dumb. rugby, how great is, you know, playing a match after the match where you're, you know, at the social it's, we are so, we are so social. When I, um, <laughs> when I was, uh, the first gig I got after I got my, my coaching training, my certification, I came out and I was working with a group of D one athletes at a local university here in Pittsburgh. And these were cross country and track and field guys. And these are like legitimate student athletes. They're in difficult courses in science and tech majors and they're running. These, these were exceptional young adults. Carnegie, not Carnegie. No Duquesne. Duquesne. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so the women I, I learned and I was coming in to kind of do the mental and emotional side of stuff. Right. And so, Sometimes we would do things as a whole group. Sometimes we'd break it off where the men's team and the women's team. And I quickly realized I had to deal with the men's and women's team very differently. And there's different pros and cons. And we're not, not even, that's not even the right way to, to phrase it. Like things that were easy and maybe challenges. But what stuck me was the men were always this one unit. Once you got in, you were in. And to the point where, 
I remember we were going to some meet, some competition, I think up in Boston for the A-10s or something. And I come and I'm like, did you guys all go to the same store? How do you all have the same version of a red plaid shirt? <laughs> they just laugh. <laughs> you know, and like, it wasn't coordinated. They're all smiling. I'm like, I love you guys. This is just great. And it's, <laughs> I think we have as especially as men, we have desire to be part of a team. I think it's part of our DNA. It's part of what allowed humans to survive. I think men thrive in teams. And all of these myths we have about like this Sigma male mindset, which makes you want to bash my head against the wall because you're advocating to guys what will hurt them to say, be isolated, be alone, you, you know, this and take pride in it. You're just trying to take pride in your pain and that's not going to help you out. You have to connect. Is that akin to the, what's it called? MGTOW? I don't know you if it is. I remember when that was a thing. <laughs> um, I'm like learning about all of these retroactively. I'm like, I'm like this is so dumb. <laughs> it's so, but at the same time, at the same time, like it infuriates me which is part of why I'm in this work because I'm looking out. I'm like, I do not feel good about what I see. Um, advice given <laughs> at all, at all. Uh, but I also, I understand the problem. I understand the problem. I understand why men yep. feel this way. I mean, shit, we can go all the way back to fight club, you know, and the, the speeches in that movie of just men feeling like their lives don't have meaning or worth. This isn't a new problem. This is a modern issue we have. We don't, we feel alone. We feel isolated. People need help and they need to be part of something bigger than themselves. And it's not enough to join a company because you are expendable to that company. As soon as some young CPA says we can save 20% by cutting labor costs, you're out. So every sacrifice you made for this company is out the window. We need real connections. We need real relationships in our lives, and we don't have them. It's the biggest problem in society, and it's even the one I work with on people themselves. I I model myself or I call myself a self-relationship coach. I help you repair the relationship with yourself so that you can go out and have healthy relationships with others. And that means everything from being able to be confident in social settings to being able to have relationships to being able to do what you talked about previously and express and just create and whatever that light is inside you that you want to bring to the world to start to help that shine. We need healthy relationships, the one with ourselves, the ones with people around us. Nobody thrives alone. Agreed. Yeah, a thousand percent. It's... It's a interesting thing that I've kind of uncovered in having these conversations of how common that is. Yeah. Um, and I think the main mediums of male interaction, I guess the ones I'm most familiar with are a sports team interaction. So, you know, the the rugby teams I've been on, I've always been able to find people who can go deeper, but mm. you know, the the male social interactions are very like well, task oriented is good. I had a I had a 
a guy, uh, Dr. Christian Heim on who was awesome. And he was basically saying how men do, they relate better over a task. Yes, um, that's true. So that's good. That's a positive. But outside of that, I think it's kind of like, even within that context, there's a few lines of conversation that are kind of approved and safe, you know, like Stanton approved, like work, relationship, whatever task you just did. And then maybe, you know, politics of the day, the, the stock market, whatever, like the, the common interest of this uh, group is. But there are so many other things that kind of have to be breached and reached for. So it's like family. Hey, Jay, how's your family, man? Hey, Jay, how are you feeling? How's your mental health? And actually, one of my friends was describing male interactions and he he summarized it so succinctly and well. He said, there's basically each party is only volunteering the information they are directly asked to volunteer. Hmm. So unless you, you know, there's a few things that are sanctioned and approved to talk about. Otherwise, you know, if you don't ask about it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about it. And I think that kind of gets to the, to me, why I want to, have this medium of, of facilitating expression and giving men tools to think about these things and then also think about, okay, why would I want to be more expressive? Okay. I've established that it's worthwhile to be more expressive. Okay. How do I go do it? You know, yeah. how do I, how do I, how do I use my voice? There's so much there. I'm trying to pick what I want to respond to. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I agree with, with everything you've said. And I think, I think part of the problem. So you mentioned about tasks and you mentioned about these little conversations. I think men like to be needed. We like to help, but that we can only form those relationships. If we do, if we, are in a position where we like to form real relationships if we're also put it in a place of vulnerability. So I think, you know, something that we see around the world is as communities get wealthier and wealthier and each household can buy all of the things they need for themselves and solve it through money relationships drop because you don't need them as much. Mm. You don't need to rely on your neighbors. You don't need to rely on your friends. There's not, there's none of that sense of, I need help today. I'm going to help you tomorrow where we're really not just asking for help and being vulnerable and all these nice things, but we're, we're leaning on each other and we're finding out who in our community is reliable. Who's not, um, you know, for someone to be able to say, you know, Thomas, he's a solid guy. Like he always does what he says he's going to do always this and always that, like that's something all of us want to have something said about us, but that can't happen if we're not in a community that's constantly giving and taking in small ways. Because if I can't go to my neighbor to borrow a tool or something like that, I can't go to them for something bigger. Like I'm falling apart and I have no idea what to do. If you can't even ask him for a drill, I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit of a jump to expect someone to jump to the, the next tier there. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And you had that experience 
with that uh, mentor of yours when you were young, right. of where you kind you were in a malaise in a a labyrinth of of self. Oh yeah, hate in some ways. There were things you hated about yourself, right? And you had that moment of just yeah, so release. I was actively suicidal. Uh, and it was, I was in my early twenties right after school. I think I, I was getting really frustrated with work. Um, I didn't really see a good future for myself. And on top of that, as you mentioned, I am someone who motivated themselves through self-loathing. Like you're a piece of shit, but maybe if you do this, you'll be less of a piece of shit. And so I had this very well-trained critic in my head who would get me to do things. and. That was great because I could push myself really hard in the span of maybe 24 hours or 40 hours to like push through all of my discomfort and get things done. Because when you feel like your value as a human is on the line, you're going to work hard, no doubt. But, you know, at the time, I just kept making this analogy of it's like I'm making withdrawals from an account without ever putting a deposit back in. And at some point, this analogy is dated now, but like I'm going to write a check that bounces. And that's exactly what happened. And I was working full time. I was going to grad school full time because that's what winners do. And I was, you know, (laughs) (laughs) trying to balance it by getting (sighs) hammered, drunk and hooking up on the weekends. And that, you know, so I'm, you know, running from eight in the morning until 10 p.m. every day and then burning the candle on all the ends. And under all of this is just thinking I'm a worthless piece of shit. So, and it wasn't until I, I worked with him and, uh, his name was father Nason. He, he was this Irish Catholic priest who came over and, you know, by this time of my life, I was raised both Catholic and Greek Orthodox, but I was kind of agnostic atheist at this point. I had a lot of issues with the churches and he's like, but we formed a great friendship and he invited me to come in and I came to him because my problem was with my job, I couldn't go to traditional counseling. I could not get a mental health diagnosis that would end my career before I had the chance to get started because of certain things I wanted to do, especially certain things in the military I wanted to do, which I was considering at the time. And I said, I, I went to him just saying, because he was the guy that on campus you went to. He had a reputation among men. If you're a guy with a problem, this is who you talk to. He'll find a way to help. And so I went to him. And he said, well, why don't you talk to me? And I'm like, I'm not excited about talking to you, but I'm also (laughs) going to die (laughs) if I don't. So uh, I'm like, fine, we'll start with that and we'll see what happens. And he invited me in and just on a Saturday, I'll never forget it in early January um, in 2011, I think it was. And he just said, tell me every reason you hate yourself. And I just unloaded. I unloaded for an hour and a half, just nonstop. And he didn't really ask any, he didn't say a lot. He didn't respond much. He just kept asking questions to keep me going. But it was just vomiting and I'm vomiting stuff that I didn't even remember. You know, things that I shoved in closets decades ago and anything I could find. And it just felt like having hot irons. I remember that so vividly, shoved repeatedly into my chest. and. You know, so eventually after an hour and a half, I was done. I said it all. There were no more tears to cry. 
that I'm looking at the ground. I'm like, what the fuck did you just do? You just, this is someone who you love, who you care about, who you value their opinion of you. What the fuck did you just do? And I looked up to see his reaction. He was sitting back in his chair. He just looked at me and he said, is that all? Like, is that everything? I just said, yeah. And his face just broke into this huge grin and he has these piercing blue eyes. And like you see a little twinkle in him and he just got up and gave me this huge hug and just said, I love you. And I just broke down all over again. And it would not be fair to say necessarily that he saved me. That was a saving moment. But the way I look at it is he gave me a model that saved my life. He gave me proof that you can show can show up with imperfection. You can show up with deep flaws, ones that you think are completely ruinous. And you can still be shown love in spite of all of those things. And that changed my life. My life has never been the same. Everything from my career to every, everything in my life has changed since that moment. Hope you're enjoying this week's episode of the Bro Novo podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it and bringing it to you. If you have not already, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating. Stick around for after this conversation where I'll be giving my reflections on the discussion and what we learned. I'd love to hear from you as well. Send me an email, thomas at bronouveau.com or find me on Instagram at bronouveaupod. Enjoy. He gave you a a floaty, and you built <laughs> you you built a a gigantic ship that sends prepackaged other ships to other people <laughs> with with gunnies. I love that analogy. <laughs> I'll take it and run with it. <laughs> Fuck yeah, dude! That's incredible. Yeah, man. Because that's the thing. Like, what a legend that guy is. Is he dead? No, he's he's still. He's uh okay. had to to move back to Ireland for some health issues, but you know he uh uh-huh. it was fun because we anytime Six Nations came around, I'm like, man, fucking England, you know, let's go Irish, yeah. But uh, yo, he's stoked. They just won a series in New Zealand. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Good for them. I've, man. Watched, I've been watching those games. I saw the yeah. highlights. Also, for- I shouldn't say it like that. I shouldn't be like, he dead yet? <laughs> Sorry, it's just, that's a little. <laughs> It's a little insecure or a little uh, insensitive. Yeah. But yeah, I think what's amazing, thank you for sharing that. Sure. I think what's amazing is that, you know, you took that and ran with it, right? Because that's the thing about ultimately, like helping people is that, what's the saying? You can lead a sheep to water, right? Yeah. But you can't make them drink. And so thinking about, like an analogy iceberg, you know, from that moment you were so deep under the water and you clawed your way back up. And now you're so far from what I have learned of you above that sea level, right. you know, and that's incredible. So 
Yeah, man, I, I think that's amazing. And also I think it explains, you know, say for those who have lost loved ones to suicide. Yeah. I think it can, exp- that analogy helps us understand why everyone doesn't make it because to have the combination of perhaps good fortune, good luck, also grit, determination, will to live, discipline, motivation, you know, whatever, all of the thousands of sliding doors of fate that led you to be alive now are different for other people. And so I don't know, man, like I haven't, I obviously I'm not a coach or a therapist or anything, but I would imagine working with people who lost a loved one to suicide is probably one of the trickiest things, you know, to, to help someone through. Um, and I'm so happy you're alive Thanks, and that too. you are thriving <laughs> <laughs> and you made it, man. You made it. it yeah. You know, it is, I haven't, I'll be honest, I haven't worked professionally with someone as a client, but I have met a lot of people and I, I've lost friends to suicide, uh, people I know. So, um, or I've met and it's, I, I really do believe I was lucky more than anything else. I think I was lucky and I'm so grateful to Nace because he, I don't know what would happen if he wasn't there. And he, especially for, I mean, for the purpose of this podcast, it was nice to see what it looks like for a man to show that type of love. And because that I know I have a very, I can see love in a very masculine way. And not just from that event that maybe opened the door to it in some ways, but love is not a feminine thing. It's, this is something that is ubiquitous to both, to both of us, um, or to all of us, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, but it's been a ride, a very unexpected, a very unexpected, weird, weird ride. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, just to reiterate, like, it's so awesome how you, you know, took that luck and then ran with it and are now doing everything you can to help other people. You know, that's, that's awesome. Well, you know, so I told you off off the the show that was so weird me listening to the interview with, you did with Brent because I heard so much of myself in him and I I'm like my God this is this is wild because one of the things he mentioned is like like me he was inspired by nine eleven and like me he feels driven to tackle the biggest problem he can find and when I after I was done with with coming out of this so you know from meeting Nace to me being relatively stable was a couple of months. I was very intense. But when I started to share my story and what happened, I realized almost everyone around me had some version of what I had, maybe not as intense, but they all had some version of, of this. And I started to realize this is a much bigger cost and problem on society from my point of view than terrorism. This is going to tear us apart. We're going to tear ourselves apart from within. And because imagine how many, imagine how many life-saving medications, works of art, um, businesses, inventions, new uh, ways of thinking 
have all been lost because they died with the people who held them or they never got a chance to flourish because that person died while they were still alive. That is a huge cost, not just to someone's well-being, but it's a cost to society. And we're living in an age where we have so many problems and we need to be able to bring our light to these problems. We need to be able to bring our creative problem solving, our ability to connect, to form groups and fight for positive change or to build the future we know that we can make. We can't do that if we're locked in fear. And that that has kind of just taken my attention and has held it ever since those moments. Why are we so trapped by fear? How can we make different choices? How can we free ourselves from this so that we can be the people we know that we can be? We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to even be amazing. But we don't have to be at war with ourselves and we can create a better future for sure. For sure. And that's what we're doing. Yeah. You know, and I'm so happy to have had the chance to speak with you and just another example of showing people that if you seek out and you want resources to deal with whatever the hell you want to deal with in your life, <laughs> like there are resources out there. Yeah. You know, I think you just have to, people have, to, we all have to take the first step. Right. Um, and also normalize it. And yeah, sometimes I wonder about the reach of this show because I'm like, well, if anyone's listening, they're interested. So how impactful could it be? You know, but then also I think, but everyone I know, everyone I meet, I just plug the podcast and the ripple effects, you know, like the, we don't, we don't know who's going to listen to this one day. It could be, 10 years from now on YouTube, they come across this, you know, and it gives them the, the life raft they need. So, right. Um, I guess one more question before we get to the, the conversation game. So the first time I talked to you, uh, I immediately identified that you have a much more robust understanding of mental health than I think most coaches do. Mm -hmm. And I asked you why a question and that question is, why are you in this field and not a licensed therapist? Right. And it's a great question. And I think I'll say up front that if I was introduced to trauma informed therapy, I would be a trauma therapist. That, that is absolutely what I would be doing. And I have huge respect for counselors. I'm in a relationship with one. I work with a lot of them. Most of my colleagues are. I'm networked with them. Um, my introduction to counseling probably wasn't the best in the world. One, because I was in a field that told me, if you go to this resource, we're going to end your career. That did not help. Yeah. And the, the way the government looks at mental health is so wrong that there's tons of people like me. There's I know so many people who go to get uh, – they're paying out of pocket or they'll do, do things because they need to get help, but they, they can't be on record because they, can't, they don't want to lie whenever they're filling out a security clearance or something for something else, even if it has – nothing to do with, with the situation. Um, there's no real risk. I think I also 
some of the counselors I met and I worked with early on did not prevent pre- look, seem to look at the problem of depression or anxiety or as these things as something that defined you as a person and something that was going to be chronic and something had to be managed. And I was not willing to accept that. And the ones I work with now do not see things that way at all, but that's how it started for me. And, you know, I think there's something else we talked about off camera that I'm going to try to work in here is I think the way our culture has looked at mental health has changed and we're in what I see as the beginning of the third, third wave. And there's probably other waves than this, but this is, these are the ones I think most of us who are, if you, if you are struggling, you're looking for help, you're going to encounter these three mindsets. The first is, is what I call the biological model that you're told that there's some sort of imbalance with your brain. There's something miswired in your brain and we need some sort of medication to fix this. This is so popular and I still hear this every day now. I just was talking to someone, a friend of mine, a couple of weeks ago who came back from seeing their primary care doctor who they were talking about symptoms of depression and they're like, well, you know, this is just caused by a chemical issue. We can fix that. They themselves knew that's not true. Even though this is a very popular myth, there's no real evidence to back it up. Uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name his last name. It's P-I-E-S. So I'm going to call him Pease. Um, But Ronald Pease is a physician. He was, I don't know, it's probably wrong. Uh, It's, but he's a, a professor of psychiatry. He teaches at Harvard. He teaches at Tufts. And he was an editor in chief of the Psychiatric Times and had wrote this article that I found a couple of years ago called, you know, debunking the chemical imbalance myth. And he makes this analogy of just like Count Dracula, this seems to be this immortal myth that we just cannot drive the stake through the heart on just saying there is no, mm. we, there is a correlation, but there is not causation. Um, and there are people pushed back, you know, Bessel van der Kolk in, in the, the book that I think is revolutionizing the way we look at mental health. Now the body keeps the score talks about being a psychiatrist in the 70s and the 80s when the biological model came around and there were people being taught that it's caused by an issue in the brain and we can fix it with meds he's like but it doesn't and it might numb you out a bit it might be a band-aid but it's not the cause it's not you're treating a symptom not the problem and if people are on too much meds at least for him he says it's a double-edged sword they're not going nuts, but they're also so numb that they can't do the emotional work needed to be free. And I love the way he put it of just saying, if antidepressants worked as good as we all say they do, depression would be a minor issue. We pump out so many meds, yet so many people are still struggling. Clearly something is wrong with this model. So I'm I'm obviously cutting a lot a a lot out of this, and I'm trying to simplify it. But I I think we can say right now the biological model as a cause for these issues is not really correct, or is not the most helpful way to look at it. We'll we'll say that. The next model we come to is what I would say the rational model or cognitive the cognitive behavioral model, and this is everything to do with CBT. And this was super helpful for me. Coaching is built out of CBT. So I was all invested in this. I going through a form of CBT early on for me was very helpful about all about, you know, changing the way you look at things. And if I change the way I look at this, if I change my beliefs, then I can change anything. 
it's helpful. It will help you get to a better place. But any if improvements you get from CBT, you're going to get in like two or three months. You're going to reach a new normal, but you're going to be there. And it might not be enough. And we know this because we know we keep changing CBT and making it into other different therapies like DBT and uh, ACT and all of these things that use CBT and try to, to grow on it that we know it's useful, but we also know it's not a complete picture. And so we know something's missing. And I remember working with someone very, very early on in my career where, you know, we were looking at her thoughts about feeling like she was worthless and she just busts out crying at one point, just saying, I know this doesn't make sense. I know it. I know logically what I'm saying is wrong. I know it is. I can't stop the feeling. I can't stop this crying. So rationality is useful only if our emotional state, I think, is low enough to let that rationality play. Otherwise, rationality is lost. If, you, if there's a kid who's scared about a monster in her closet, if you go up to that kid and say, hey, buddy, no one's ever seen a monster. They're not real. Like the kid's not going to say, oh, thank you for that rational argument. <laughs> I feel great. I'm going to go to sleep now. <laughs> so clearly, I think emotion plays the upper hand here. And so this brings us to the third one, which is this, what I call the emotional relational model, which is it is our feelings and especially our relationships play such a huge role in how we feel. And I can go, I know we're, we're getting short on time, so I don't want to go down all the places I can go with this, but there is so much evidence that shows that having good relationships improves your sense of well-being so much that it's almost silly that we would look outside of this if we want to create big improvements in our life in a relatively short period of time. I mean, look at what happened for people during lockdowns of COVID. If you want to see how important it is for us to be social and have relationships, look at the chaos that came from that and the massive mental health issues. I can make anyone have panic attacks if I isolate them in the right way. There is research to back that up. So if we feel like we're too low on the totem pole, that we are expendable, that we don't really belong to a group, that we don't really feel like we belong. We have a natural desire to want to prove ourselves, to want to find belonging, to want to feel like we deserve to be here. And so much of what we talked about early on, I think, taps into this. And so what I do with people, what I have found to be most useful, and this did not come from philosophy, this came honestly from so much trial and error, is building a self-relationship founded on self-compassion. You are an imperfect human being, and you will always be an imperfect human being, just like everyone else. You are simultaneously still deserving of love and respect, just like everyone else. No one is inherently better than worse. Life is hard. We're all trying to do our best. And even though that might sound like a, to a part of you, like this now puts you at risk, and maybe you won't be as driven, you won't push yourself enough, it does the exact opposite. By getting rid of that fear... Just to go all the way back to our first conversation, by getting rid of that fear, you make room for expression. And it creates this avenue where people are so much, it's so much easier to be vulnerable and show yourself because there's not as much at risk. And IFS, Internal Family Systems, one of the, the main meta, uh, interventions I now use that I love is all about forming healthy relationships with every single part of yourself, even that critic, even the part of you that feels ashamed, even uh, 
the part of you that feels uh, worthless or wants to pull away from people, whatever it is, or is nervous in relationships, if you can build healthy relationships with all those parts of yourself, you're going to do great. So I think we're moving and that's all trauma stuff. That's all trauma stuff. This emotional model is all trauma. And if anyone is saying looking for a great place to start on getting a foothold with this, the body keeps the score is by far the best place to start. But there's so much to do and explore and see here. I could go on for another hour easily. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing, dude. I love that survey of the landscape you gave because it's interesting because, um, because I feel like mental health is still a relative niche. Mm-hmm. It's not often we can have discussions with a critical eye of what's working and what's not because everyone's in the same team. Right. But I think it's important to have honest evaluations just like in every other part of society and to not shy away from that. Um, yeah. And I, I think the line about antidepressants is so true. And also I think, I think that one hesitation I have is, is what if, what if the biological model is accurate for some people Mm -hmm. And by offering this IFS model or trauma-informed model, it's a false dawn for them. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up because that is obviously one solution isn't going to work for everyone. If you have if you have an issue, if there is legitimate issues with with the wiring in your brain. Which and this does happen. We, we there are disorders that will cause this, and they can result in some of the things we're talking about. These interventions will help. Will help manage the symptoms, just like everything else. It's not really. I think in a, a way to think about this is you have to be really curious about what is the cause, because that is that's what's going to take us to finding the right solution. If it is a biological issue, it needs a biological solution. If it is a belief-based issue, which it can be, a training-based issue, you can retrain. You can break that. And if it's an emotional or relational issue, it needs to be fixed there. Otherwise, the only thing you're going to be doing is managing symptoms. This sucks in part because sometimes you don't know if something's going to work until you've gone down that road for a while and can see the payoffs or the lack of payoffs. and. We are still in our infancy, beyond infancy, in understanding how the brain works and how all of this is all tied together. And maybe that's just another invitation for all to us have, for all of us to have a bit more compassion for ourselves, for the people working on this issue, for the people who are sacrificing their lives and giving themselves and their entire career to trying to help. Um, everyone from researchers to clinicians to the people struggling, this is, it's hard and we're all really trying to do our best. For sure. Well said, Jay. Well, you're eloquent and obviously very passionate and it's awesome. I think this was a, 
a slapper of a conversation. <laughs> and I'm going to give you instant legend status. Oh, thank you. I'll take the it. highest, the highest praise <laughs> from from me. So I appreciate. Nice it. job, man. That was awesome. Thank you. For sure. Okay. Do you want to go first or second? Second. In answering a question. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Oh, I already saw these. Let's go to the middle of the deck. Okay, who's my here's my question. Who has supported me at my most vulnerable moments? Mm. Uh I can think of my one of my best friends, Alex. Uh is hilarious from really like serious like crisis all the way to calling him. I'm really, I'm really drunk and I'm, what was I? 18, you know, and just like nothing bad was happening. I was just like, Oh my God. You know, and he just like calmed me down. Um, and then I think my mom and my sister. Hmm. Yeah. So here's the, just both very, yeah, if I can, if I can run <laughs> off that question, I don't know if this is allowed in this game. Have you told these people? Yes. Cool. I recently told Alex and my sister that. I don't know if I told my mom that, so I will. I for sure will. Cool. Good point. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think it's the biggest thing we lack in today's world. I wrote a, I found out one of my teachers from high school got fired, um, which was just to save the administration money. And I wrote him a letter and what he wrote back to me moved me so much. Just, I think gratitude, none of us know the role we play in each other's lives. So I think anytime we get the opportunity to say thanks, even if it's just small, I think it's a good thing, but that's just me. For sure. That's preach. Ooh. Mm. How do you tend to react when you feel hurt? I get quiet. You don't know. Withdrawal. Withdrawal. But it's a, I, um, I will outwardly, you will have, you might know because I, I I do I don't have the best poker face in the world, but if it's a shock hurt, which is how I'm reading that card, I'm it will be as if it never happened on the outside. I will be pretty numb to it even internally, and then I will unpack it later. Okay, so it's kind of a conscious numbing, and then when it's safe to. It's not unpack it later. It's not conscious at the beginning. I just know that I have to unpack it. The unpacking is conscious. But it's a it's an innate reflex. I don't if I get hurt, I tend to just absorb it and hold on to it. And that is something I've had to learn over the years that that's a good short term thing. And then it's my job to come and address that later on. Nice. I uh, I tend to communicate it if it's well. That gets into the whole the whole question of like 
impact and intent from other people right. and if someone else heard us and all that, but I, I tend to, I'll either get angry or sulk <laughs> and then, but I'll, I'll usually go back and like run at them with it and yeah. be like, we're talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, that's good in a way, you know, as long as you're able to have yeah. an actual conversation. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're getting there. Cool. We're getting there. Awesome, Jay. Where can the good people find your work and learn more about you? Right. So for better or worse, I do not have social media, which right now is for the worst because I've written a book or I have a manuscript for a book and I'm struggling to get it published because I'm this no-name author. And people are like, if you don't have 50,000 followers, we're not going to even look at you. And I'm like, well, I have zero. So, But I don't. I, I struggle to have a great relationship with social media. And so, as someone who wants to follow their own advice, I just don't do it. So, really, the best way to get in touch with me is to contact me through my website, um, which is jamesjstamatellos.com. I assume it will be in the, the notes for this video because um, it's just a, a very long, unnecessarily long Greek name. <laughs> but, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I hope to have, I might end up doing a crowdfunding campaign and do hybrid publishing to get my book out because I really would like it out sooner than later. So, because this, this has been four or five years of amassing all of this and trying to just answer two questions. Why do so many of us feel insecure in this way and what interventions actually help with data and a mix of my personal story and a mix of what I've seen with clients, but also a big, you know, what is the research actually saying? So, yeah, hopefully that will happen sometime in the near future as well. I look forward to reading it. Thank you. For sure. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for the great conversation. Thank you, Thomas. Hey, everybody. It's Thomas. Dropping in to comment on what was an episode I really enjoyed. As I said in the description, I'm, I've developed a... Uh, a healthy skepticism of coaches, I, we could say, over the course of doing this podcast. But when I first talked to Jay, I was just very impressed by the depth of his understanding of different therapy modalities and how thoughtful he was ab about how to bring his clients some type of help, but specifically resolving the anxious insecurity that we talked about a few things that really jumped out to me are just that first question of who are you and what do you want to do with your life? Because ultimately I think that is a something really worth inspecting for everyone because from there we can just define and build the life we want as opposed to being really task or outcome oriented. So focused on money or a family or living in a certain place or some type of external validation, being able to have that honest self-discussion and figure out who am I and what do I want to do with my life is a great place to start. One thing I really enjoyed was the discussion of community relations and community interactions in a place where everyone relies on each other for small everyday gifts and favors it builds a much deeper and wider trust that we've lost because 
most of us can go to a store to get what we need. We can order it online. There's a lack across society, a lack of this interdependency. Yeah, I think this this conversation was was wonderful, and I'm so happy that I met Jay to to share this story because this, these are the kind of stories that are at the heart of what I'm trying to do. Everything he shared about his own journey and how he 